You know, one of the things we're trying to do this for is that bottom line is we're trying to make some local efforts so that other people can do the right thing. And frequently what happens is we're in these offices, behind them chairs, up in them walls, and never in the neighborhoods. And yet we try to talk about how we trying to do X, Y, and Z for the neighborhood. Where I came from, I, you know, I came from a teenage mom, just being straight up, you know, didn't think about being a doc. That was not, I was thinking of working at GM. That was my gig, right? Because they made money and they had costs. This is Color Code, a podcast from STAT. I'm Nicholas St. Fleur, a science and health reporter here. In over eight episodes, I'm taking a look at the hidden and not-so-hidden forces behind our country's stark racial health inequities. Last week, we talked about racist bias in medical algorithms. This week is episode seven, and we're talking about how researchers can diversify clinical trials including the ones that many algorithms and other medical decisions are based on. Improving diversity within clinical trials is something that a lot of people in the field are working on. If our medical interventions are going to work on diverse populations of people, they need to be trialed and tested on diverse groups. It seems simple, but you should know by episode 7 of this podcast that it never quite works out that way. To get deeper into this, we're sharing insights from two particular people. The first is Angus Chen, my colleague here at STAT. He's a reporter who's been learning about a researcher in Richmond, Virginia, and how he connects with communities of color. So Angus, before we start, tell us a little bit about yourself. You are our cancer reporter, is that correct? That is correct. Yes, I am Stats Cancer Reporter. This series that I've been working on, obviously, has been focusing on health equity and cancer research. It's looking at like the ways that researchers are trying to change how they interact with communities of color. Um, the way they recruit from communities of color for research trials, uh, like clinical trials and research studies, um, and also the way they're like trying to change their own institutions, their own academic institutions and structures to make research more accessible, more equitable, more just uh, in, in cancer. You went on a bit of a, a reporting trip. Tell us and tell our listeners a bit about what this reporting trip was about. First of all, when did you go on this reporting trip and where to? And give us all the, the lowdown. I went to Richmond, Virginia around the end of March, and I went specifically to talk to the director of the Massey Cancer Center at Virginia Commonwealth University, or VCU in Richmond. And his name is Robert Wynn. He's a pulmonologist and an oncologist. He'll also be the first Black president of the AACI, the American Association of Cancer Institutes, which is the the body that sort of oversees all these NCI-designated cancer centers. Um, And... I was really interested in talking to Dr. Wynn uh, because I'd heard that he was making a lot of changes in sort of the culture and the structures at the Massey Cancer Center um, to make the research being done there and the care being given from the Massey Cancer Center more equitable, more community focused, 
Um, and I wanted to learn more about that and how he was doing it. Um, Dr. Wynn himself, I mean, he's he's a, a black man. He's from upstate New York originally. Um, he's like one of these guys who never imagined he would even go to college or let, let alone become a doctor. Like his his original dream when he was growing up was to work at the local GM plant. Um, but uh, but of course, he didn't take that path and, and instead went around and uh, and is trying to, you know, is, is spending his life really trying to make cancer research and cancer care look completely different than the way it has over the last, you know, century. Dr. Wynn, as you said, I believe we have a bit of a callback to our first episode here. I think he was either the, I think he might be the advisor for Arnithia Sutton. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, so he's not her like PI, um, but he's a mentor to Arnithia Sutton. Um, they know each other well. They worked together uh, quite closely. And, you know, I mean, as as you know, Arnithia Sutton's research does focus on health inequities in cancer. And and this is really like their, their the passion for, for both Dr. Sutton and Dr. Wynn. For our color code listeners there, you might remember Arnithia from our first episode on medical mistrust, which I think plays a bit of a role here in, in, in your reporting, looking at, you know, increasing diversity in clinical trials. I guess one of the things that I, the sort of ideas or assumptions I came into this trip with was that mistrust would make a big difference in how people think about research and how people think about like sort of medical institutions like the Massey Cancer Center. And I thought history would matter a lot too. Like people would know the history um, of like VCU, which used to be called the Medical College of Virginia. And there's a lot of things about the Medical College of Virginia that are pretty messed up. Like it was one of the the places where uh, the first heart transplants in the U.S. was done by taking a heart from a man named Bruce Tucker, a black man from 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 Richmond, and giving it to a white man without his or his family's consent. They, they basically doctors at MCV stole this heart and, and and gave it to a white man. And you know, it's like one of those things that's like celebrated in, in medicine. Like, oh, they performed one of the first heart surgeries, heart transplants ever at this place. Um, but it, it took a long time for that history to be talked about. Um, as other part sort of racist history associated with MCV and of course VCU as it's now called um, like the discovery I think you talked about this with Arnithia Sutton but the discovery of you know black bones in a well um, beside the Egyptian building of, of, of VCU and so I, I really wanted to talk to community members to see if that influenced their opinion of VCU but the interesting thing that I like one of the first things I found out was that it, it didn't really for most people, it didn't. And in fact, for most hmm. people, they never heard of this history before. Um, but there was a really interesting uh, reaction that I got when I was discussing this history with people who hadn't heard of it. Um, and when the, before I even talked to Dr. Wynn, I, I talked to a local pastor um, not named Dr. Yvonne Bibbs. And uh, this was her reaction to hearing those stories. Here in Richmond, Virginia. And I think that's enough said. If you walk down streets downtown Richmond, you will find that uh, there are many places where the streets were um, made by slaves. The bricks are still there. And Richmond is the capital of the Confederacy. And Black folk were slaves. You cannot erase history. So, I mean, this was like one of the first things that I learned or heard in Richmond that started to change my perspective, which is that maybe some of this history, the details of this history don't 
matter as much as we think they do. And it's not that they don't matter at all. They do matter. They matter immensely. But not in the way that people, when they're thinking about research or they're thinking about VCU or MCV, if they're more familiar with that name, um, that like they're thinking, oh, I don't want to go there because they experiment on black people or I don't want to go there because they stole a heart from a black man. They don't actually, a lot of people don't actually know those stories, but there is something else. There's this like, I don't know, maybe it's like a, uh, I'm not sure how to describe it actually yet, but like maybe like a culture or a mindset of of protecting yourself, of like of a healthy skepticism that says, I don't know everything about this place, but I do know I'm in a country that is a white supremacist country and does not protect me and often actually acts against my interest for the benefit of others. Um, and, and, th- and that sense, I think, is really pervasive and doesn't necessarily mean that someone's thinking about it in the context of like the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. Tell me a bit about, you know, when you first met um, Dr. Wynn. So uh, part of the the trip that I had planned was to coincide with something that uh, Robert Wynn calls a district walk. And he basically goes to neighborhoods that are often uh, cancer hotspots or they're often low income uh, communities of color. And he sets up like a community meeting, like sort of a town hall to talk to people who live there and say, hey, this is who I am. You know, this is actually how you can reach me or reach members of my staff. And here's like what, I, what I'm what i offering you. Um, and I'm also like here, he, like I remember when we first got to one of these sites, he leaned in to me and he said like, hey, like the most important reason why I'm here is to listen. Like I'm, I'm here so I can, I wanna hear from people who live here and hear what, you know, what they need and how I can do better for them in terms of access or health. Or even more than that, just like for the neighborhood. It sounds to me like this was kind of like a walk along kind of thing. Yeah. I did two of these district walks with Robert Wynn. The first one was in a neighborhood that was sort of to the east so east side of Richmond, just outside of Richmond. Um, and we drove over to a spot. Sort of, it was a kind of like a playground area. Uh, and there were a few people waiting there who, who lived in the neighborhood. And a state representative or a state counselor was there as well. She showed up to talk and, and listen as well. What Robert Wynn does is he kind of gives a stump speech. He like talks about all these things. He talks about cancer. He talks about what um, the cancer inequities that affect the black community. And then he opens up to people just for conversation. He like people ask him questions like, hey, uh, can you tell me like if my children are going to get cancer? Because I had cancer and my parents had cancer. And, you know, my aunts and uncles, they had cancer. Um, and then he'll he'll just answer their questions. He'll like he'll talk about like sort of germline mutations, like mutations that might be passed down from uh, from from parent to child that increase your risk of cancer. And then what what kind of things they might be able to do about that. Um, and then at the end of this conversation, he and his staff will give their contact information to to two people who are at that meeting, the residents of this neighborhood. And they'll say like, hey, if you have any more questions, you can call me or you can email me. Um, and at the end of this sort of town hall part, he usually will walk around a little bit around the neighborhood, but it's not a more like talking to people. Often the people who are at the town hall, they just go home at that point. During that little walk around, at least when I, what I saw was like the county manager was at this last meeting, this last district walk. And it was more of like him, Dr. Wynn talking with, these local officials and saying, hey, can we do this? Or can we try to do this? Can we like, sort of start something here that's going to uh, hopefully change health equities in this area or like 
you know, change cancer inequities in this area. How does that play into this bigger picture idea of, you know, diversity in clinical trials, trying to increase diversity in, in clinical trials? If you want to tell us a bit about that. So Robert Wynn often uses this phrase, high tech and high touch, um, which is basically like what he means by this is that there's a lot of high tech stuff happening in cancer research right now. We have AI, we've got precision medicine, we've got like immunotherapies, right? Targeted therapies, all this like super exciting stuff that's done a lot to save people's lives and improve outcomes. Um, but what's missing, what's been missing for so much in, in science and in, in cancer science in, in particular, I think, um, is this high touch element, sort of this personal touch element. And when, so Dr. Wynn's idea was that if he shows up personally and, and, and tells people what he's about and shows them who he is, he can show them that he's trustworthy. And as a representative of the Massey Cancer Center, the Cancer Center is trustworthy and help people realize that he's actually there as a resource for them. He's not there to take anything from them. He's not there to just use their data um, or, uh, or, you know, make money off of them even. Although, of course, we, we know that hospitals are a business. Um, but he's trying to sh give this, create this image and sort of create this relationship that says, I'm not here about, I'm not, that's not what I'm about, right? Like, I'm about sort of being a service for you. He also talks to them, to sort of his audience in a way that's uh, just like very natural. Like he, he, I think he definitely tries to be as down to earth or just as like much of himself as he can be. And like less like, oh, I'm like a, I'm like a fancy doctor who's the director of a, of a cancer center. Um, I think I want to play you a, a clip of him talking that I think really demonstrates like, you know, how he relates to, to crowds and, and audiences and, and other people and, and communities. It's hopefully, you know, hopefully y'all have me back because sometimes I know I can wear people out. My grandmother told me anyway. She said, "Boy, you wear people out. Where you talk, you just wear people out." But but hopefully, I ain't gonna wear my stay because what I want to do is make this the first of connection. And by the way, we ain't doing nothing right if all we doing is just taking care of your cancer. So here's the other thing I want to try to do. I'm right here. Where's your pipeline program for our young kids? I just had a group of fourth and fifth graders up last yesterday on Sunday actually showing them and like, like, look, like, yo, this is how this, this is what this can be. They'll say, well, you a doctor, you a cancer doctor. How come you sound? I sound exactly like how I sound because I'm actually proud of the people I come from. Period. Oh, that's interesting. Like in terms of him feeling he doesn't need to like code switch mm -hmm. when he's, you know, just in his everyday life. That's, that's very powerful, honestly. It is. And you know, the other thing is he doesn't even do it in academic settings. I, I ran into Dr. Wynn at every cancer research conference this year possible, pretty much. And I talked to him there and I listened to him talk, like give lectures to other researchers and scientists. And he still talks the same. He doesn't feel like he needs to code switch. He doesn't want to code switch even. He's just like, this is who I am. This is who I'm representing. He's like, it's not just about cancer. Like, we as the Massey Cancer Center, we want to be a resource for more than that. Like he talked about sort of finding ways to bring jobs to, to this community from the Massey Cancer Center, uh, find ways to like bring better grocery stores to these communities as well. It's, it, 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 it's, it's sort of this like really big picture talk that says, hey, you know, I know I'm a cancer center. And ultimately, this for me, this all does connect back to cancer. But like, but that's life. Like cancer is life. We want to make sure that 
um, you're living as healthily as possible. Whenever I speak to people about uh, or experts in this area about how to get more, um, um, you know, people of color in clinical trials or how to help diversify clinical trials, they always talk about, you know, you need to be where the people are. Um, the big case with, uh, you know, COVID vaccines is that you shouldn't have to wait until there's like a global pandemic for the community to know who, you know, who these local researchers are, who these folks are. And it sounds very much so like he's, you know, not only doing that effort, but has been doing that effort. You know, the people in the community, it sounds like they know that know him. It sounds like this isn't his first, you know, walk along. So, so tell us a bit about how this walk along, how it directly relates towards like clinical research and clinical trials. I guess when you're just looking at this and you think, well, what does this have to do with research? Because you know, he's just talking to people, you know, they're just getting to know him, but he's not like there being like, hey, sign up for this trial, sign up for that trial or something, right? Um, but I think, I mean, what we know about who joins research and how they join research often has to do with the networks and the connections that they already have in their community. So. One of the reasons why so many research studies and clinical trials in cancer have been so overwhelmingly white is because the academic research centers where the, this research is being performed um, have a patient population, they have a, a, a catchment even, that is primarily white and more affluent. And it's primarily a pop population that has a greater level of sort of baseline trust in, these, in the medical system. Um, and uh, at baseline often have better sort of personal historic, like sort of in their personal history, better interactions with clinicians as well. Um, and all of that we know from research translates into people being more willing to participate in clinical trials and participating in research. And, and there's more to it than, than sort of just trust, I suppose. It's, it's also like access, like whether or not people can make it to wherever they need to be to like take part in a clinical trial, whether or not they have the time to do it, if they have resources to do it. Often clinical trials require you to have health insurance. Even if some of these acts, these barriers are solved in some way, there's like a solution to them for the trial. People aren't always aware of them and they aren't always able to uh, have a strong enough or, or a trusting enough relationship with the investigators to feel like they can ask for help on, on, on some of these access issues. So it sounds to me what's special about this kind of walk, walk along or walk through the neighborhood is that it's not special. He just does this all the time. They do this all the time. And that's, that's the point of it, to the point that the, the community knows you and you built those relationships. So when you do need to, you know, kind of lean on those relationships, they're, all, they're already there. They're already established. You built that trust. It, it, it's also about like the relationship existing in the first place. If you ask communities of color if they want to participate in research, they pretty much resoundingly say yes. Like people actually want to participate in research because they are altruistic. Like people are like, I mean, I suppose this is maybe a philosophical point, point but a lot of people are altruistic. They want to take part in research because they believe it will benefit other people. Maybe it will benefit themselves in some way or their family in some way too. But uh, if those relationships don't exist, that question never gets asked, right? And never gets asked in a respectful way. When I followed followed up with people who were at that district walk, I talked to a woman named Teresa Burrell, and I asked her what it meant for her to actually see Dr. Wynn show up at in her neighborhood and talk to them and listen to them and sort of explain what he's really what you no know, he's about and what he wants to do. This is what she said. 
what it means to me is just saying that we're being heard as a community. What it means to me is saying um, someone's thinking about us, someone's caring about us, and, you know, we do exist. The other thing she said, and pretty much everyone I talked to who was there at that meeting said, they'd never seen anything like this before, where like a doctor or the director of, of a local powerful institution came and sat down with them. What do you hope they kind of, the people who are listening to this come away with when we talk to, in regards to what Dr. Robert Wynn has done, how that applies towards increasing diversity in clinical trials? Like what, what is the take home message from, from, from this walk along from your reporting trip, from all the work that Dr. Wynn is doing? I think it's it's fascinating what he's doing, and he's obviously putting a lot of effort and a lot of work into uh, into this sort of this type of community engagement and outreach. Uh, he really believes it's going to make a difference when people think about research, when think, people think about clinicians and their relationships with their clinicians, and and down that line, he really believes it's going to change like sort of the the way that research participation looks. Um, but it's not everything. Um, it, it, it actually depends on a lot of stuff and the, whether or not he's going to be successful also. Like I know like during this whole time we've been talking about all this stuff that he's doing. I actually don't know how successful it is right now um, because it, it you actually have you're going to have to look at like whether or not it's actually affecting the enrollments of his of the of the research that's happening at the Massey Cancer Center. You kind of have to look at like, you know, the health outcomes in this in this region, are those changing? Um and uh and, and that of course is something that's going to take years to see. And uh and finally like, you know, are there any concrete changes in the communities that Massey Cancer Center or Dr. Robert Wynn uh, have been involved in um that you know are are making positive changes. Uh, I mean, that's like a huge follow-up effort, um, but it's 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 obviously really important because we want to know whether or not these efforts are worth it, whether or not they are, um, you know, a, a model that could be used to change the relationship that communities have with researchers and research, uh, not just in Richmond, but, you know, many other places in the country where the same problems exist, where people don't, like often communities of color, aren't asked to participate in research or they don't participate in research because there's something wrong, not because there's something wrong with the communities, but because there's something about the research that is preventing them from doing it. There's something about the way the researchers are interacting with the community that is preventing them or stopping them from being a part of this science. Um, and so I think I think really the, the, the takeaway is, one, the goal has to be there. The goal of like changing that relationship needs to be really front and center. If researchers want to have any hope at all of like making sure that their trials and their what the participation looks like in their trials is equitable and is diverse. Um, and people in the community do respond to this doctor, Robert Wynn. And they say, you know what? I didn't know about him before. I used to not want to go to VCU, but after meeting him, my perspective is changing. Angus, thank you so much for your reporting, and thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's great to be here. After hearing about Dr. Wynn and his efforts to connect with the local community around VCU, I wanted to get the bigger picture. 
So I turned to one of my go-to sources, a guy named Dr. Jonathan Jackson. Yes, uh, my name is Jonathan Jackson. And uh, do, do you want like my full mass general title? Because they give everybody like nine titles. He's the director of the <laughs> CARE Research Center at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. And we've talked a ton about this topic. I know he's got a lot to say. Are you tired of talking about diversity in clinical trials? <laughs> You, you know, so I, I am a scientist, which means that I have a higher threshold for talking about my work uh, than most people. Uh, I, I think I'm tired of having the conversation of, is this interesting? Is this worthwhile? Should we care about this? I mean, of course we should. Um, but starting to see, you know, the, you know the, the first fruits of all of those efforts and all of those conversations and all of that planning, uh, that becomes exciting because it means we as scientists get to ask new questions uh, about this whole diversity lark and how it intersects with clinical trials and clinical research. So I, I'm actually not sick of it yet. I'm, I'm doing pretty good um, because I think there's a, there's a lot of new stuff coming down the pipeline uh, in this area. Just last month, in May of 2022, a committee that Jonathan briefly served on from the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine released a comprehensive report on the impact that the lack of diversity in clinical trials has on health outcomes. The report called on the FDA to hold researchers and their institutions more accountable for recruiting diverse participants. But how do they actually find those participants and get them to sign up? Angus told me about how Robert Wynn is doing it by trying to build trust in the community. Um, a lot of researchers, if you ask them, uh, they'll say, oh, trust, you know, the, 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 those people don't trust us. Uh, and there's a, a huge conversation to be had around that. You know, number one, it's not about, uh, you know, you as a, as a clinician or you as a researcher, you don't deserve trust inherently. You got to be trustworthy. And, and there's a lot, a lot of people who have written, um, much more cogently and eloquently on that topic than I have. Uh, but it turns out that there are probably a, a, like 10 other reasons why people, uh, can't get involved in research. Often people from historically marginalized communities are simply not asked to participate in the trials, or they don't know who to ask if they have their own interest, which shows just how important Dr. Wynn's work is. We as, as researchers, we keep bankers hours. Uh, if you aren't willing to come in between 8 a.m. and 3 p.m. Uh, on a weekday, then you know you don't have a chance. And, and so and you have to be able to be willing to be doing this uh, sometimes you know, every week for up to two years. And it you know, really, really adds up over time. People have to go to work. They have to take their kids to school. They have to live their lives. If you are not, at the same time, white, male, overeducated, so you have to have a master's or a doctoral degree, and living on an urban in an urban center on the east or west coast of the United States, if you're not all of those things at the same time and rich, uh, then you are underrepresented in clinical trials, in clinical research, which means that when the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, when they approve some sort of therapy, uh, we don't know how it works in someone who looks like you or someone who has the background that you have. So let's talk a little bit about researcher or a clinical trialist who's, who's listening to this. You know, what would your advice kind of be for them if they want to make sure that their clinical trials are diverse? If you have white people as a referent group in your data set, you're doing it wrong. You're being racist. Please stop. Uh, and so I know I'm going to get a lot of hate mail for that, but it's true. Um, there are lots and lots of things that you can do. So, so number one, the, the best thing that you can do uh, is have a really well-defined, what I'm going to call a sampling frame. 
So if you think of your larger catchment area, all the people that could do your research study, define a sampling frame. So instead of the people who maybe could do your research study, try to figure out who actually will do your research study based on your selection criteria, based on the fact that you're going to keep bankers hours, uh, you know, based on the fact, you know, that, that individuals uh, from your health system are the ones who are going to be most likely to participate uh, and really try to drill down who's going to participate. If you don't have a diversified representative population from that sampling frame, that means that you are going to have to try new things in order to recruit that population that is broadly representative or diverse. Um, the number two thing that I would say is uh, most people are going to worry about trust, but before you can worry about trust, you need to worry about awareness. Uh, if people have never heard of you, um, then the trust is not your problem. You're going to have to do some advertising. You're going to have to do some, some talking, some conversation. It takes sustained effort to form a relationship with local communities in the way that Dr. Wynn does. But Jonathan also believes that that type of work could lead to more inclusive research. If you can find a way to design these trials from a very human-centric perspective, uh, then, then what you're going to find is that folks are going to respond. They're going to participate not just in this study, but in the next 10 studies that you're going to, to try to design and advertise within this community. Essentially, researchers need to recognize that creating diverse clinical trials is complex, and there are no shortcuts. Lots of folk think that all they need to do to find Black participants for studies is go to a Black church. But that's not enough. It's really important to recognize that there is diversity within diversity. And just because somebody has a brown face doesn't mean that you'll find them, you know, at the one church that you're going to go to on a Sunday. But he's got more ambitious hopes for the future of research as well. You know, if we think about science and we think about what, what the colonial model is, uh, science is it. Like, science is the most colonial thing that I think we're currently doing right now as a society. And we got to get rid of that because it's not sustainable. It's not helpful. We have taken it as far as it can go. And uh, we need to come up with a new playbook here. Usually it's a small number of very, very powerful people who have no sort of uh, 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 transparency or accountability, uh, who are collecting data on vast populations, uh, who don't necessarily get to directly benefit from that. Uh, they just get to, you know, the privilege of participation. That's, that is like, you know, that's colonialism. So, so the idea is, is that, um, you know, in, under decolonized science, it doesn't stop the science that people are already doing. It just adds context and it just adds structures and support. It makes the science that you're doing easier. And it means that you don't have to work as hard uh, to make sure that your science can reach each and every one. You just need to be able to step aside and let someone else do that job if you're not willing to. At what point would you stop being, you know, asked to speak on this, the, these issues and such? What, 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 what oh, metric boy. needs to yeah. be reached? <laughs> what metric needs to be reached? That's a great job. I would actually love to be out of a job. I would, you know, love, I'm a scientist, so I would love nothing more than to be just like stuck in a corner with a large data set and a fast computer and just left alone for easily decades at a time. If you're asking me when I'll be happy with the work that I'm doing, it's when we can redistribute these, these systems of organization and power so that everybody gets a chance to participate and everybody gets a chance to benefit. And we're just so far away from that right now. As I had mentioned, Jonathan and I have spoken about diversity in clinical trials many, many times. And I remember once before we were set to take the stage at the STAT Breakthrough Summit earlier this year, he just said to me, hey, I'm just going to go out there and I'm just going to, I'm just going to share my truth. 
I feel like that sums up how a lot of researchers in this field are, are, are feeling. They're going to share their truth. They're not going to tiptoe around this issue anymore. Diversity in clinical trials is important. Diversity in clinical trials should be the baseline. And they're going to make sure it's taken with the same amount of seriousness that it deserves. Thank you for listening and being part of our Color Code community. Our team here at STAT is Alyssa Ambrose, Hyacinth Empanado, Teresa Gaffney, Crystal Milner, and me, Nick St. Fleur. Kevin Seaman is our engineer, and Tino Dello Merced is our intern. Our theme music is by Brian Joel. Special thanks to Angus Chen and Jonathan Jackson. Thanks also to the Commonwealth Fund for supporting this podcast. Angus's reporting is supported by a grant from the USC Annenberg School of Health Journalism. After every episode, we'll have a bunch of photos and some more reading related to the episode's topic at statnews.com. So please, go check it out. We'll have our final episode in two weeks. If you like the podcast, please leave a review and subscribe. And if you have any thoughts for us, you can reach us at colorcode at statnews.com.